0: Writing craft book on your bedside table? Has it been there
1: for a while? Do you keep meaning to get past chapter two, or chapter one, or just the first
0: page? Then the Words to Write By podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Renee. I teach composition and creative writing to college students. My background is in poetry, but I'm working on my memoir.
1: And I'm Kim. I'm trained as a science journalist, but now I'm trying my hand at short fiction. Each week we'll be tackling a chapter of some well known, but perhaps not so well read, writing craft book.
0: Together, we'll uncover brilliant insights, face the hard truths, and totally disagree when the author is wrong. This is our podcast, after all. And then, we're going to take what we learn and apply it to our own writing. By doing the book's suggested exercises. We're inviting you to read along. Or just tune in for the Cliff Notes version. We're committed to improving our own craft, one
1: writing advice book at a time. And we'd love for you to join us. Happy holidays, listeners. Our question this week is if authors employ Bickham's plot templates in their own novels. If you want a refresher on those seven templates, check out Renee's comprehensive show notes from episode 26 on our website,
0: com. But before we get to the interview, it's time for our Patreon pitch. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so just want to take a moment to let you know that we have a Patreon account, and we have various good things on there, such as bonus episodes where we go into more depth on our workshop of each other's work we have some snark notes which are in-depth chapter note summaries with examples that i put in there for our listeners kind of like a study guide and then after that we have an actual workshop group so if you'd like to join our group and do the activities and get some feedback we got that for you too so just head over on to patreon for words to write by podcast uh, and we hope to see you there And thank you so much to our
1: current Patreon supporters. We use that money to pay for our hosting services and other fees associated with this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now on to the interview.
2: I am Val Neal, dark fantasy author, and my new book, Dark Mind, is coming out in December. It's dark urban fantasy, and it takes place in the 1950s.
1: So in a previous podcast, we had these different plots that Vickham used to increase tension and keep people reading their books. Do any of these seven different plot templates apply to your work?
2: Listening to it, it was funny because like, I think the first three are basically the same thing. It's just introducing conflict. My books, I would say the first book was probably a mix of one and three. It was hard because it was my first book that I wrote and I basically wrote a bunch of funny scenes between two characters and then had to lay out all those scenes and say, how do I carve a plot out of this? And it's basically character conflict. The protagonist is also his own antagonist. So he is basically causing all his own problems.
1: So that goes against the Bickham idea where you don't have an external conflict.
2: It's all man versus self or whatever. It's just him projecting stuff onto other people and making bad decisions.
1: When you're reading through that first draft, are you identifying places where you think the reader might put the book down and not pick it up again?
2: Yes, I've gotten a lot better. First draft of the first book, like I didn't have a lot of conflict. I had a lot of good critique partners and beta readers that helped. And I went through and looked at at scene by scene. And so I check and see if I have a proper conflict, if I have, a hook. Hooks are really important at the end of scenes so that people keep reading. And I've gotten a lot better at that. My second book, I wrote linearly. It was a lot easier to do cause effect, cause effect. And Dark Mind is more like number three, where the new goals get in the way. So they have their main goal, but they have little side goals that they have to do. And then They kind of take a hard right turn in the middle of the book when a new problem crops up that seems unrelated but will feed into the larger series. I've gotten a lot better at pulling people along. On a scene level, I can pull people through the book so they don't necessarily want to put it down. Each scene has its own little mini arc and whatnot.
3: And like you said, there's a
1: hook.
2: You can't always have a hook, but
3: try Hi, I'm Lee Clark, author of the Matthew Payne Mystery Series, which currently has four books in it, and I'm working on the fifth one now. Bickham had seven different
1: templates that he said cause readers to turn the page, to be engaged with a story, to
3: raise tension.
1: Can you pick any of these templates that you think apply to your own work?
3: I can pick several that apply to different books. The one I wanted to talk about is Christmas Punch, so it's the newest one. It also is a Christmas book, so highly appropriate right about now really the closest one would be his number three, that a new goal gets in the way and the hero has to get rid of all the other goals in order to get back to his original goal. So Matthew's original goal would be never again to have to be consulting with the homicide detective that he's worked with on the past cases. And the only thing I would take issue with is Bickham talks about returning to the original goal. I would say that part of the character's journey is growing beyond the original goal. So that as he satisfies all of these other goals that kind of pop up and get in the way of the original goal, maybe he doesn't, at the end of the story, want to return to the original goal. Maybe he's grown in some way and that goal has changed. Right.
1: I think in Bickham's world, if the guy doesn't climb the mountain at the end of the story, then why are you reading the book anyway? (laughs) (laughs) true I I get that point I really do do you use any of the other techniques like for a mystery the reveal the number seven where he talks about a character who's been a minor character suddenly revealed to be a major
3: player the one that I'm writing right now iced that's absolutely the case there is a bad guy that is kind of playing games with him and he's doing it very intentionally These techniques
1: to keep the readers going, do you feel that they're something that you actually like actively use to keep the story going? Or do you think it's just kind of a consequence of the plots that you like to tell?
3: I'm a pantser. So I think they're totally consequences of the plot because when things start to get a little bit boring, you just throw your hero into some kind of imminent danger. You just hand him another hurdle, something else that he has to overcome I think it increases the tension, the intensity. You just, you won't want your readers to think, I'm going to put this book down now. You want them to keep turning the pages. I mean, that's Bickham's whole premise, right? Right. I would say I I don't plan them necessarily. They follow the plot, but you know, you just keep throwing that hero into imminent danger.
4: My name is Nick Chiarkis, and I have my novels here. Here's the most recent. It's Nunzio's Way. It is a crime thriller. Not mystery. In a mystery, it's a whodunit, like a Sherlock Holmes, and you're going to work with the detective to find out who did it in a thriller. You kind of know who the bad guy is, and now you're going to be held in suspense waiting for somebody to catch him or her or not. He gets away with it. And so it's a crime thriller.
1: Those are both ways to keep the audience turning the pages of your book. Bickham has several different templates that he uses to keep readers engaged.
4: Yeah. And I I don't agree with him on everything, if that's okay.
1: That's fine. We're all about disagreeing with these books we read.
4: Okay, good. First, let me say, I think if you focus too much on the structure and what's right, or anybody's design, I've read more books than I care to remember on how to write a novel. There's just too many things to think about as opposed to just letting yourself go and write. The way you get the reader to turn the page is they have to fall in love with the characters, even the bad guys. They wanna like those people and they wanna know what's going and then what happens to them. So you would
1: say, rather than the structure of the book, it's the characters themselves that keep your readers reading.
4: Yes, it's the character. It isn't the structure. The story is wonderful. It has to be a really good story. The story is the snow. But the plot, the plot is the footsteps in the snow. And your reader wants to follow those footsteps. You have to lead them someplace. And if you keep giving them cliffhangers, where they don't know where to go, they'll stop following the steps. So the plot is what moves it along. But loving the character, I think. Stories have to be character-driven. The problem with the cliffhanger is that I become conscious of the person telling me the story. I become conscious that it's a story. And as I read on, I'm still thinking about what happened to this person. I'm not even paying attention to the words in the next few sentences. I don't want to do that to my readers. I want them to follow those footsteps where I want them to go.
1: Thanks to all our guests. And now we're going to dive into our penultimate scene and structure episode, Specialized Scene and Techniques. Have I mentioned that I hate his chapter titles? So we're now on chapter 12.
0: Yes, I, I feel the book getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, a lot of these chapters feel like asides now. Like, oh, I haven't covered this yet. How much more can I throw in here? (laughs) Last bits of stuff before the final exam. (laughs) You know, it kind of is. And it reads like that, too. There's these big chunks of data. (sighs) The professor didn't, like, use time management well throughout the semester. I don't know. (laughs) Not that I've ever done that.
1: So you made an observation before we started the podcast about the approach that he's taking at this point. I found that
0: fascinating. You want to rephrase that? So halfway through this chapter i'm like this is weird stuff he's not giving a lot of examples it's all you know rhetorical like if you want to do this then do this if you want to do that then do that and you're like who thinks in these terms how would a reader apply this stuff i mean do you think in structural units now while you're writing and like has bickham entered your brain because i'm reading this going i would never think of these things while i'm writing Well, I got the same feeling. At this point, we've gotten so far away from what a plot
1: of a story is. We can go over these specifics, some of the details, but like Bickham will take a secondary character in a subplot and basically say, well, this is how you raise the dramatic tension in this scene by introducing this character here. And this is how this character's thing must, not plot-wise, but structurally has to end in order for the action to keep going. You read books because you want to read the stories. And you want to believe in the characters and that everyone's doing these things because it's part of the story but in bickens world they're all just moving around and playing a structural role to keep people turning the page yeah
0: it's like he sucked the story out of the story it's very confusing because it all just kind of melds together while i'm reading this like i don't know if i'm ever going to use this stuff like is this a reference manual do i go back and reference this after i've written my draft Is this only helpful if people in my workshop have also read this book and are following it to the t at the very beginning he said the reason why i'm going to teach you these
1: techniques is it will make it easier for you to be creative in your writing it'll actually make it easier to the writing because you will know these structures to build your story on his theory is that yes you're gonna have a side character and you're gonna be invested in what this side character does and their plot and all that but As a writer, you realize when that subplot is going to derail the rest of the story, or if it's starting to derail the rest of the story, here's how you fix it.
0: It's still very hard to follow for me. I just don't think in those ways when I write. And this part of the book, I'm getting a little bit of anxiety (laughs) because he's almost like throwing out these rhetorical situations in ways that I would never think about a story. And then it makes you feel like, yeah, you're about to take an exam. It's like i need to know these 11 things and i need to memorize them and i need to be able to apply them in this exam maybe it was maybe he had a test for his students i'm not sure here i will have a bit of hope for you i'm
1: not sure if this happened in your classes but when i was doing my classes they were all science classes and we'd get to the end of a particular class and i would feel like i was getting absolutely nothing like you know it would be on genetics transcription translation this 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 all these things going on have no clue And then I go to my next semester, and I take immunology and suddenly realize, oh, yeah, that thing about transcription, it applies here. So I did find that I learned more from the classes than I thought I was learning, because when I went to the next class that relied on those materials, they made a lot more sense. Did you have that
0: going on when you were in school? Uh, Yeah. In fact, you know, I used to tell my students, I have to remind them that they're taking the intro to college composition and I'd have to remind them, hey, guys, this is hard stuff. They almost assume that they have to get this stuff, but if they don't, they're dumb. And I'm like, no, this is hard stuff. You're learning thesis statements and topic sentences, and people will just pick these up. You have to go to college to get this stuff. Sometime next semester, in the middle of the semester, you'll be in another class, and then you'll be like, oh, thesis statements, that's what <laughs> It's not going to happen right away. Our understanding and learning doesn't take the shape of a semester unit. But it's one of those things that you can't quantify. Sometimes it just takes months. You have no control. You just have to wait it out. So maybe that's what's going on
1: here. Maybe we can touch base next June and say, hey, Renee, now you're publishing your memoir. Do you think maybe you <laughs> might be managing your scene and sequel techniques a bit more like Bickham said? Are
0: you seeing how the subplot introduction works now? Yeah, yeah. We should make a little like note somewhere for future episodes. Remember we talked about this? Let's come back and <laughs> our discussions are kind of revealing how we feel about learning. Yes. And it's being revealed to our listeners the anxiety I feel while learning. I'm really good at learning. I would consider myself like a master's student. If you saw my notes, you you know. The problem is it's also revealing how much anxiety I feel. I need to get this stuff and I start to not panic, but I start to like freak out and my brain goes all over. Anyway, Kim, do you have any consoling words for me? You know, it's your
1: anxiety that makes you address the stuff that you don't understand and get through it. Because it's very easy, especially if you're learning on your own, to have something in particular you don't really understand. You just kind of pass it by and you don't worry about it. Like, you know, I have never really internalized how logarithms work. And every time I run into them, I put a little veneer on, I push ahead, but I never actually have gotten so frustrated with myself that I don't understand how logarithms work that I'm going to really dig in deep. But I suspect you're one of those people that does actually get frustrated enough that you dig in deep.
0: Yes. Although I don't know what a logarithm is. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs)
1: I picked an example that would sound really smart, hoity-toity, so there we go. Oh, it does. It does. It sounds very scientific.
0: I'm very impressed. I love how the science part of you pops up every once in a while, and I'm just, like, delighted by it. It's my poetry words, Renee.
1: Just treat them as my poetry words. She's speaking grammar. (laughs) Her science grammar. So these... Techniques and stuff that he gives us are very abstract. So I thought, as opposed to our previous podcast, we went through and we tried to find examples in various books for the stuff he was talking about. Let's just go on these and identify stuff that personally resonates with us in the stuff that he says, if it maybe applies to something that we're working on or that we've thought about. And if it doesn't, we'll just move on through. Sounds good.
0: I like that plan. This is why we keep Kim around. And I do the editing of the podcast. Oh, that too. Yeah, that's a big one. Thank you, Kim.
1: So, Bickham has 11 points. 11! Of uh, variations on these structures and all that. And I I noticed it, that in the end he does say, nearly always the answer is not to jettison the classical structure, but to know how to bend it. So today we are gonna bend it like Bickham. Bend it like Bickham, awesome. Just, you know, I've been waiting to use that phrase the entire frickin' book. So I'm so glad you did the setup. That was a good movie. (laughs) Yes. he has 11 of them but then he helpfully puts them into subsections so we're just going to tackle the subsections and if you want to see the bullet points that's what snark notes are for yep there's always the snark notes first up is scene slash sequel technique we're talking about interrupting a scene with another scene or something and he says yes i told you before not to do it but i told you not to do it before because it was a mistake someone accidentally did it and here we're going to do it to increase the dramatic tension of your book.
0: Yeah, he says to like throw in some kind of mini disaster to derail the character, but he says to only do it if you know that your reader is already hooked and they're not gonna like get annoyed and put the book down.
1: And to figure out some way to get them back into the story so you don't go on this tangent of this extra thing and never get back to your proper scene disaster, which is
0: supposed to end your original scene. You could use this in a variety of ways, but he mentions the new character who wants their own scene. (laughs) like you threw in a new character and it's like hey hey i want a scene too it's like every sitcom secondary
1: character that everybody claps on when they show up because they know that something wacky is going to happen oh yeah it's like every time kramer walks into a seinfeld scene
0: i was thinking of one of those armageddon movies at the end where like some surprise scientists wacky scientist shows up and then like drops the bomb (laughs) gives this new information hey guys Did anybody ever notice the alien blank? And everyone goes, oh, that's true. And then we never hear from that scientist again. I liked
1: where it's not just interrupting scenes, but he's also talking about interrupting sequels. He had two examples that were useful. Number one, you have a character that's going through a sequel. Some disasters happen, they're feeling low. And this character has no way of actually getting themselves motivated at this point to do anything else. And so at that point, Bickham says, well, you introduce another character, so it becomes a scene who's there purely to either positively motivate or threaten this character in such a way to get their button gear and get them moving.
0: It's the good cop, bad cop scene within a sequel.
1: Yeah. So that was a useful one. The other one that I liked was the idea that you interrupt a sequel so that you end the sequel at the end of the chapter. Oh, for dramatic effect. It's the equivalent of a cliffhanger, but for sequels where the person comes to resolution and they're going to do the next thing. And that's where you leave the chapter.
0: This method's usually used when there's so much crazy going on, like there's a big fat murder, but then there's other people in the room and you got to get them out of the room. And it's just, you can't process it because the action hasn't stopped. And then suddenly after the action has stopped and so much has gone on, there's all this trauma that's occurred. And, you know, you can't really end it on a big explosion. There's been explosions throughout the whole chapter. Now we need to chill out and figure things out. This is one of those
1: points where Thickem's, control a structure makes you see it in a different way. You were talking about how, when you have one of these scenes, you don't end it on a disaster because you've been having disasters all the way through it. Without Bickham, I'd almost think, yeah, sure, you ended on a disaster and then you had them contemplate all this stuff in the next chapter, starting with a sequel. But from Bickham's idea, it's like, well, this profound thing's happened, but we're gonna delay the sequel to give it the biggest impact possible. He wanted to have the time and space to really give his character a chance to process it in a dramatic way that the reader would have time to then really appreciate it and put at the end of the chapter
0: yeah next up is non-viewpoint character scenes so this one essentially is like somebody knocks on the character's door and thrusts some papers into their hand and says have you seen these photos and like this character the viewpoint character i.e the protagonist has not seen this extra character before but suddenly the scene is in their hands and they have control over the scene even though it's from the viewpoint character's perspective.
1: He phrased it really nicely. The central character often is acted upon to get him into motion. In such cases, a scene might easily start by someone else walking in, stating
0: a goal and starting a scene, or by shooting at the hero. Right, and they're kind of in control of the scene goal. The protagonist isn't in control of it, even though it's from their point of view. He says, whoever that interrupter is that comes in with the scene goal, that's not the viewpoint character, they will always win. They always get what they want and the disaster falls upon the protagonist. Yeah, when the scene is being driven by the non-viewpoint character, they get the goal, but it's your protagonist that gets the disaster. Bickham had this little nugget of advice that I really liked, also would make a a good t-shirt. Always end your scenes to make things worse on the hero, even if it means sometimes altering the usual pattern of scene structure. (laughs) Whatever you do, make it worse for your hero. He also slips in a little
1: bit here. What happens if you have a scene from the villain's point of view? And apparently the thing about a villain's point of view is that they don't have to end their scenes on a disaster. But if you choose to have the villain end a scene on a disaster, it has to be something that's going to motivate them to go after the main character even more. All right. And then this is my favorite flashback scenes. Flashback scenes.
0: Time travel. I'm a big fan. (laughs) Max, my husband, and my buddy Greg, they normally don't like time travel plots because there's too many loopholes in them. Yeah, but a time travel point isn't a flashback. It's a type of time travel. I mean, we do it in our heads all the time. And it is, I think, a form of time travel where you are going to live back in the past for a moment and be stuck there. And you're sticking the reader there, and they're kind of hovering in place until you get back to the current action. Pickup says one of the issues you can run into is that when you travel to the past, it's far more
1: interesting than what's going on in the present, and the readers don't want to go back to the present. They want to find out more about the backstory in the past.
0: Well, at that point, you're telling the wrong story. (laughs) I know
1: that that happened for me in his appendix, because we didn't actually get to know this character before he had that major flashback.
0: This was the spy, right, who was in Canada?
1: Yeah, so this was Appendix 5. Yeah, we have a spy in Canada on the run, and he's thinking back of his whole personal history that got him to that point. Guy was like, no, I want to find out what happened to his mother who disappeared. I don't want to be back in Canada. I mean, who wants to be in Canada when there's this really interesting story before it? This flashback occurs in the sequel. It's part of the thought process. Honestly, before reading Bickham, I always thought of a flashback as that moment when there's all the action happening, and the character suddenly has a flashback to this other traumatic event that weaves together. But in fact, I was misremembering it. The person was always in sequel, or he's usually
0: in sequel when they have the flashback. It's a form of processing. Mm -hmm. And that's how it occurs in my memoir a lot, is if there's a flashback, it's almost always in a sequel. It's where I'm trying to figure things out and be like, why is this character doing weird crazy things oh it's similar to the weird crazy things in the past and then i can make a statement about it like can't fix crazy yeah there are some techniques if you don't
1: want to get too long into the flashback he says you can summarize so your flashback doesn't have to be a scene it could be a sequel within a sequel a summarization or he also talks about scene fragmentation did you understand what he was talking about for that you know all i did was
0: highlight the example <laughs> the whole example? No, I i gave myself a note. So he says that often you see only a fragment of a scene, sometimes as little as a single vital dialogue exchange inside a present scene internalization or in the thought portion of a sequel. And I wrote, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this reads like science, right? I don't even want to try to parse what the heck that means. I'm just going to go straight into the example. Don't do it, Bill, Richard pleaded. Bill grinned and continued to strap himself into the bungee harness don't be ridiculous people do this every day what can go wrong right
1: (laughs) this is one where you actually are in a scene and then you're jumping into a flashback that's another scene it then goes on to richard froze the words ripped him out of the present time back into that high windy mountainside five years earlier It had been gina on that ramp trying to get herself into the hang glider which at this point everyone knows exactly what happens (laughs) right
0: gina please don't do this right like we get it
1: (laughs) (laughs) right and she ends with you're just being silly what can go wrong and then she'd launched and the wind had tipped her wings almost instantly and she'd fallen like a bird shot out of the sky now here was bill taking a similar risk using the identical words what can go
0: wrong okay this is bad like i would read this put that book down i'd be like this is tacky this is bad amateur writing this was an example and he wanted to specifically
1: show you the points of it here he had a trigger in the scene that immediately put someone back into a flashback and then he showed how that trigger was immediately relevant to
0: the current situation i have a question what happened to the appendices in the beginning, he had these great appendices and descriptions and a line analysis of stuff. It was great. And then halfway through the book, they stopped.
1: Actually, in the end of this one, it says to see the flashback appendix, appendix five. And it also says to see the scene interruption appendix six. He just started double using his appendixes. Right, but
0: there's like, there's maybe the nine more of these tricks with scenes that have no appendices to reference. And the examples are rhetorical or...
1: I don't know. I'm just... Well, Bickham was master of the page turner, and then he also wrote nonfiction. Bickham knew perfectly well that the majority of readers would not get this far in the book. (laughs) So you don't need any more appendices for stuff that people aren't even going to get to. Right. Why would you do that? That's just extra printing costs for stuff that no one's going to read.
0: Okay, so PSA announcement to anyone writing a craft book. If you don't think that we're going to keep reading the book It's because you don't have enough good advice to keep us going or you don't have examples. And if you don't have examples, something's wrong with your advice. I'm just saying it. It's just out there. I think that's pretty harsh.
1: The majority of readers don't stop reading because there's not enough examples or because the craft book has done anything wrong. The majority of readers stop reading because there's something interesting on YouTube or Netflix series or something else. It's very easy to put a craft book down in the second half of it. Well, That's, that's an interesting conversation. <laughs>
0: why do you put craft books down
1: because my brain is full and i'm going to apply these various things that i got and i need to get back to actually writing my book as opposed to reading a craft book and you know
0: i put another book down on top of it and it disappears do you actually like use the advice in the book did it actually translate into your writing well if it's a profound like uh the next book we're doing bird by
1: bird yeah i totally use some of that advice or some of the other craft books that i have done I've seen some of the examples they were talking about in my work and then focused on those. But to be honest, majority of craft books I picked up is because somebody told me I should pick up this particular craft book or I was doing it for a class.
0: See, I, I would argue that maybe the reason I put it down has to be for the reason that I picked it up. I have an expectation, and maybe it's a false expectation, that this book will fix something or that I will learn something and get something out of it for a specific problem. And when it doesn't look like it's going to be that ultimate solution i put it down we
1: only have so many hours in our lives right and there's always another
0: cool shiny thing that comes up over the horizon would you suggest somebody if they pick up this book and they ask hey should i read scene and structure would you tell them to get this far i'm finding some really interesting stuff in this part here at this point he has drill into our head
1: enough about how a sequel works, how a scene works that you can actually start parsing this stuff. Because if you hadn't read carefully up to this point and someone's saying, well, you know, if you're interrupting a sequel with a scene, you need to make sure you put in this element and that element and your disaster needs to come here. You'd be like,
0: "What?" (laughs) well, see, I'm already like, "What?"
1: (laughs) (laughs) no, you're getting this. But
0: like we said, this stuff is hard and we just work through it. Right. So we did flashback and then he gets into the all dialogue scenes, which uh-huh. I see some writers are very heavy dialogue writers. And I actually like them because it's a really fast paced book. Right. I think his big advice here is that it says it's
1: all dialogue, but in fact, the phrase is it's a paradox, but all dialogue scenes sometimes take greater care in description and viewpoint reinforcement than does a more action oriented one. Cause you need to have your takes. Unless the two individuals are so uniquely different in their voices and there's only two of them you're gonna need tags he said she said whatever but you're also going to need observations and internalizations and also descriptions of everything around as well all dialogue is a little bit of a misnomer because it makes it sound like it's just a series of quoted dialogue all the way through but in fact what it means is it's the dialogue that's the cause and effect all the way through yeah and everything else is support
0: yeah it's like chocolate chips in a cookie the cookie is like the dialogue scene but it wouldn't taste very good without the chocolate chips i would say the other way
1: you get the chocolate to cookie for those chocolate chips but if they weren't being supported by a cookie you'd just be eating a mouthful of
0: chocolate chips sure i don't know either way you go i want a cookie <laughs> <Like> right now <laughs> i'm thinking of cookies and i want them <laughs> all right dear listener
1: and then it is the flip side you have an all-action scene which also requires an internal dialogue to kind of keep it going too. In a car chase scene, no one's having a dialogue back and forth with anybody usually, unless there's someone else in the car. But when you're writing it, you have to include internalized dialogue to support the action and make it more engaging.
0: Right. Oh, I want to talk about a pet peeve for a second. Okay. All right, you, you novelists out there, listen up. When it comes to these tags or descriptions, Bickham does mention, like, having to describe how someone's speaking or descriptions of their face because they're talking, right? Don't overdo that. Please don't. I don't care about the little twitches of their mouth and their eyebrows moving. Some people go way too far into, one, how something is said, and two, what's going on with their face. I just skip that stuff. Just letting you know. And in fact, it annoys me that I have to skip that stuff because I don't really care. The dialogue should be carrying most of that. That's my theory. But what if the speaker's a sparkly vampire and you want to see how deep and sensitive his eyes are? I I could not get through (laughs) that book. So my sister-in-law loves that book. And I know many people who love that book. I'm not dissing those people. Okay. I mean, I have read the Witcher series twice. Okay. I like some cheesy stories but man i could not get through that book it just i was so oh god he was sparkly and i didn't want to sparkle with him it's like glitter no glitter in the house (laughs) i have a very strict no glitter rule and that book has glitter in it you open it and it gets all over your desk the cats track it through the house that's all i'm saying
1: you know it is the fact that someone writes all those descriptions And yes, when you're in a dialogue scene and you don't want to read them, it's really easy for your eyes just to scan only the stuff in the quote marks and just keep going down the page if you wanted to.
0: Yeah. What about this maneuver scene against the
1: unseen opponent? So, again, the person reading it thinks that they're just watching the character by themselves go through these motions. But, in fact, to create conflict, you have to have the character actually propose what his enemy is doing in his head or her head so that when you're following it along, you know why it's so important that they don't go down the river track at that time, but instead go in in further into the forest.
0: Ah, it is the anxiety catastrophizing, yeah? One where
1: the protagonist is on their own, running away for something or trying to get to something. The reader thinks it's all about the surface thing, but in order to make them work, you need to incorporate the cause and effect. You can never actually get too far away from the cause and effect. In these scenes and in order to incorporate the cause and effect when it's only one person and they're doing stuff you need to insert it internally internal dialogue or something else internal thought process to create that cause and effect
0: it makes me think of like the angel and the devil on your shoulder talking it's like well you could do this or you could do this and you're kind of in the middle like uh where am i gonna go and that is exactly a method that
1: writers or cartoonists usually have come up with in order to actually make something happen when the character is standing there, not sure which side to go for. Yeah, I like that example. That's good.
0: Cool. Then there's the multiple agenda scene. So, a multiple agenda scene is like there's a scene, but there's various different goals or various ways the goal could fail, and they're all c- competing.
1: Right? And you can't just knock them out. You actually have to address them because you've introduced all these things and if you were to address them, your reader would be reading and saying, but wait a second, you know, you didn't mention the dog at
0: all. And that
1: was a really important thing. So
0: (laughs) I had thought of an example earlier um, in a previous episode that illustrated this one. He gave this example of the hero must confront the entire board of directors. And immediately I knew what he was talking about because in our Making a Scene episode, episode 18, i included a scene from aliens where ripley is in front of a board of directors (laughs) and they're all giving her shit in different ways lots of alpha male dogs in the room yeah and i said in the show notes here's an example some show notes dear listener if you've not been to our website here here's me breaking down a scene so ripley the protagonist says the scene goal out loud how many times do i have to tell you and then I put in practice what happened to the Nostromo and the crew on the planet and then the story question was will she be able to convince and also warn the whaling corporation about the alien threat. And the answer is no, and no and no and no like they're constantly throwing things that well you cost all this much damage and you don't actually have any proof of these aliens and all of these things. And she's trying to explain the bigger threat here, which is maybe I don't have that proof, but I did live through it. And it really is a threat. And you guys are like nitpicking all this bullshit when really these aliens bleed acid and like will eat your face off and impregnate you. And not in a good way. (laughs) And not in a good way. I thought it was actually a really, really good scene. So if you are watching Aliens, it's in the beginning when she's in front of the board of directors. It's a great scene. There's a lot of things going on and the goals are competing and she sticks to one, which is what you need to do in a scene like that, where you kind of funnel them into like the main conflict. One of Vickham's golden rules is, when in doubt, restate the scene goal. Yeah, (laughs) that's what she does. She just restates her scene goal over and over again. And the disaster he says should be clear cut at the end. Like it's one disaster. It's a big general disaster that kind of closes the loop of all those worries
1: yeah we are getting to the point where we give ourselves a um writing assignment and the obvious writing assignment would be very much replicating what we did last time which is we pick one of our own writings and we apply one of these ideas and techniques to it and we, we rewrite it or modify it, and we talk about it but we just did that and it's getting really close to christmas time <laughs>
0: yeah. hey dear listener we've got lives so
1: what are we going to do so we don't actually do a writing assignment this week <laughs> Okay, what are we going to do? So here's what I'm thinking. Very soon, we're going to put this book down, and we're not going to pick it up again for a really long time. So I'm going to go through the book and all those things I I underline. I'm going to identify five main points going forward from Bickham that I'm going to keep and hold dear. (laughs) Did you just come up with that?
0: Off the top of my head. (laughs) Oh, you're awesome. Five main points from Bickham. I love it. And then it'll actually be applicable. Yes. And then we'll write them up and put them on our... our, A (laughs) t-shirt. That would be cool. No. (laughs) It'll be on our Patreon site. They can either
1: be rules that he said or some situation or something that basically, you know, you're going to draw upon as you're going forward on your writing because it was something that was really important to you in the writing. Yeah. And then we'll pick out the five and discuss... Mm -hmm. And then for the bonus podcast, we can do the ones we're going to completely throw out the window when we get done with the podcast. Oh, my God. That's awesome. That's hilarious. So five things you learn you're going to keep with you and three things that you're going to completely forget about when we get done with the podcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah, dear listener. You'll have to review the episodes to get them all. (laughs) Anyway, we'll
1: do that over the next week. And in the meantime, we should check in with Renee and see how that magic mind thing's going
0: oh my gosh magic mind okay so magic mind approached us and they were like hey we think that our product would be really awesome for your audience and we were like oh maybe because you know writers tend to procrastinate the key of their product is to like get you into the flow state with you know vitamins and other things there are these little tiny
1: shots of pure concentration. You get them in these little containers and Renee's got a whole pack of them and she has one every morning right before she has her coffee. Yeah, And
0: it's a bit of caffeine and a bit of other stuff and it keeps you focused, right? So they sent me this thing where I got like two weeks supply to see if it ups my motivation. And it's got matcha in it and it's got like some mushrooms in it and it's got some turmeric and some other vitamins. And I do take vitamin supplements anyway But these extra ones are really nice. Like the matcha gives you a little kick. And I do drink a lot of coffee, but this one feels like kind of a different caffeine. The key here is that it builds over time. So like you can't just take it a few times and be like, oh, did it work or did it not? You kind of got to give it a try for like two weeks. And I will say my motivation for running has gone up. I go through this weird phase where I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I don't want to run. I don't want to do this. And then like an hour later, I'm like, oh, I will throw my running gear and go out. Well, this stuff is great because when I wake up, I'm already kind of awake. Like it's helping me get out of bed because it's kind of accumulated over time and I'm a little bit more energetic. And so it's harder for me to talk myself out of running. In terms of writing, I'm a little bit more clear headed. So that's nice. Um, I'm more clear-headed. I've got the energy. I don't feel like I need to take a nap as much. So yeah, all around, it has really upped my daily routine game. And I suspect if it's helping motivate you to run every day,
1: that's also improving your focus and your energy levels and your lack of needing a nap every day, if you're also improving your health that way.
0: Right. It's a it's a nice addition to your process, into your routine. I mean, it's not, you know, a savior of your routine, But it can be really helpful. And so I like it and it has become a permanent part of my routine.
1: There you go. And if our listeners are interested in trying that out,
0: we have a deal from Magic Mind folks. If you go to www.magicmind.co slash words and you put in the code WORDS20, you'll get 40% off your subscription for the next 10 days. So that's a pretty sweet deal. And the code will be valid forever for 20%. Right. But for the first 10 days after this episode, uh you'll get 40% off the subscription. And as we are going into the holiday season,
1: I'm sure that everybody could use a little extra focus and uh, energy.
0: Oh man, this would be a good gift too. <laughs> like if you have a fr- no I'm serious. Like if you have a friend who's complained that they have like some writer's block or they they're just like not motivated, get them a two week supply of this stuff. Why not? And you know, I just over the years i've started adopting and all my friends have been pushing for this to stop giving physical gifts because they fill up the house because we've got so much junk in our house and we don't have big space either right so you know make them cookies give them something that gets drunk you know like get them some whiskey or some gin or some magic mine and they could hold off it till new year's and it could start with their new year's resolutions oh my gosh kim <laughs> I'm gonna buy somebody some Magic Mind. There we go. Glad we have the promotion. Yeah, actually, that forty percent off—that's pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, get to it. Your shopping's almost done, dear listener. That means we really do need to make sure we get this episode out before Christmas. <laughs> yes, that's true. We do have to get it out before Christmas. Okay.
1: Well, uh, I think we've got our assignment, and we had a great conversation about exactly how to deal with these end of a craft book when you're feeling completely overwhelmed. And uh, yeah, yeah. All
0: right, well, we'll see you with our five takeaways from Bickham.
1: All right, so our activity required very little work this week. I'm so happy. Yay! Well, tis the season, you know. So our goal was to find five things that we will take with us when we put aside this craft book and
0: and don't use the word Bickham again for some time. Right. I mean, you know, it might get folded into the next season or the next book in response to the next book, but. So I think we'll just go
1: down our list. And I think a lot of us are actually very similar. My first thing I wrote was how to start your story. I really liked the idea that Bickham had that your central character's sense of self is disrupted in some way and that that's where you start the story.
0: Yeah, I, I had that same one. That was from episode 17. I really like this idea of the self-concept and that it gets threatened. So you have to like figure out who your character is, and then threaten it, he said, specifically with an external factor. Which, if you break down a lot of books, you find that, yeah, they kind of do that.
1: And what I liked about this is it's kind of masked, because if you just are reading a book, you might think, oh, you start the story when the hero's daughter is kidnapped, because that's when the action starts. But... Part of the reason why it works is also it's threatening his idea of being a father. Right. It's an
0: obvious thing, but he showed a much deeper reason why that's where you start the book. Yeah, you could just watch almost any film or any story, really. So I thought that was really helpful. Also, I hadn't thought about it before until I read the book. And you know what? It really helps. Like once he said it, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: I found that a lot of the advice in the Bickham book has opened my eyes to seeing how that is being practiced everywhere and that's one of the things i've learned
0: yeah and you know it's interesting i i talked to a lot of my friends who listen to our podcast thank you guys shout out to corby linda <laughs> they uh listen to our podcast and you know they're, they're not writers but they really find the discussions kind of fascinating because they love stories and so this book in particular kind of breaks down the magic like it pulls back the curtain on what's going on in a story and why you like it. And they've told me they've identified like, oh yeah, this book does that based on the things that you and Kim talked about. Right, because every book has a story and you always start with the
1: beginning of the book. So the next thing I found was, I wrote down was, what is in a scene? Specifically, the s- stating of the scene goal and ending in a disaster. And again, it's kind of obvious once you start looking at it, but the whole idea of having a scene goal and that you state the scene goal is something I would not have thought of before. But I think it's so useful in characterizing your scene and and figuring out what's going on.
0: Well, yeah, and it just reveals to the reader what the purpose of the scene is. I remember when I tried writing a novel, I did finish the draft. It was pretty awful. But when I was writing the novel, one of my problems was I was writing scenes and they just kind of felt like they were just talking heads, just relaying information. And now I go, oh, I can see what my problem was. It was totally the fact that my character didn't have a scene goal. And you know what's great about this one, actually, is for memoir, if you're like creative nonfiction, memoir, and you're writing a scene, the same goes. You as a protagonist have to have a goal. And then at the end, the best part, I think, is that tactical disaster. It either ends with a yes, but, or a no, and. Like, yes, you get what you want, but, or... No, not only do you not get what you want, now there's an and, like, and this happens, and this happens. Yeah, it just crystallizes
1: what you need for a scene. Do you use this when you're writing? Here's my thing. I'm saying that I'm going to use this information, but I'm not going to use it exclusively. When I'm looking at a scene that's not working, I'm going to pull out what's the scene goal, what's the tactical disaster. Right. Right. Just so we're keeping track here, you put your scene goal and your disasters two separate things, right? I think that they're two separate things within okay. a scene. All right. So my next one was, what is in a sequel? And this was brand new information. And now when I'm writing, I actively think, oh, wait a second, I'm writing the sequel part. So I have to hit the emotion, then I have to thinking where I like rehash what went on, analyze it, plan something new, commit to that, and take the action. And that's just really useful when I find myself in that part of the writing to know where I'm going.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've noticed a lot of scenes will just end and there's nothing after. And then you think, well, what is that character thinking? The sequels essentially do that. They include the segues between your scenes. In general, I would say between the tactical disaster singles and the steps to the sequels, if you're getting comments in a workshop, if they are content related probably one of these things you could just go down this list and be like okay my workshop member said that they're not identifying with this character or they don't know how they feel or whatever it's like oh well that's probably a sequel oh i didn't share the thought process of that character or i didn't make them plan you know how did they figure out to do the next thing right to kick off the next scene or you know i'm not really sure what the purpose of the scene is oh there's a missing single And I also like the fact that the sequel is a linear thing
1: and you don't have to treat it linearly, but when you're like just struggling to write the darn thing down, it's
0: like, okay, what are the emotions? Okay.
1: What do they think about it? There's a progression.
0: So you're, you're a strong proponent of the, like planning the scenes and sequels ahead of time, like Bickham did. And then like doing variations later. No, no, I don't plan them. But when I'm
1: at the point of just trying to figure out what to write next, it's useful to know that I'm in a sequel. So that Ah. means I've identified what the emotions are. Okay, now I can go on to thinking about what's going on. It's like a progression. I'm sure a lot of writers run into this where you start getting deep into the characters' emotions and you just start kind of spitting out of control and it goes nowhere. And this is a really good way of saying, okay, had the emotional moment, now take it back to the story. Yeah, what's your next one?
0: Well, mine was an error, actually. So in, in his Common Errors, I think it was episode 21 or 22, he talked about the forgotten single or the missing single. And I was missing a lot of singles in my scenes. But also the scenes would go off in weird places because my family crazy gaslighting people. And so it's like, what? None of this is making any sense. And it was helpful for me on like a my own level, like, oh, my gosh, Even me as a person couldn't figure out where this was going. But now I know why I wasn't able to write about it in a way that made sense to anybody because it didn't make sense even at the time it was happening. So now it gives me a way to shape an experience that's not going to follow a narrative arc. It helps me put it into a narrative arc by making sure that there is a single, whether or not, you know, in real life, we don't always have singles, (laughs) But this is a really great way to help uh, memoirists shape their experience into a narrative. I'm definitely keeping that one.
1: Right, because the critical thing is you don't experience your life as a story, but a memoirist has to take their life and turn it into a story. And they can do that partly by identifying parts of their lives and sticking a darn single in.
0: Yeah, you know, that's one of them. That's my personal issue is not having single, but using these templates, essentially, these steps for a linear memoir anyway, they can be really helpful when you're starting to do some experimental stuff. And I do those in my memoir and also some essay like stuff. Some of this may not apply. But if you're already going into those experimental realms, you probably already are familiar with the tricks that writers use. So you would be able to identify when and when this wouldn't apply. The other thing I learned from him is where to put your flashbacks. Where do you put your flashbacks? Put them in the
1: sequels. (laughs) But it's nice to have a framework again to say, okay, there is a flashback. Oh, it makes perfect sense. This person is thinking stuff through. There you put in the flashback. All right. So that was all I got. I wanted one more shout out for note cards because Bickham did say what you should put on the darn note card, which was, of course, the single, the various conflicts, and the tactical disaster, but still, you know, it's, I can see myself in the future when I am creatively spent on this novel and I know I have to do some work just saying, okay, I'll just make some note cards and see what I got.
0: Yeah. So I'm itching to finish my book, partly because I have another book in my head I want to write. Oh, that's good. It's a novel and I've, I've had it in my head. I think you've mentioned this one before. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's based on a book that I taught a lot Anyway, so I want to write it and I'm itching to write it and I'm totally following. <laughs> totally going to get those note cards and I'm totally going to just like plan the whole thing out. Totally bickamize it and then deconstruct it. <laughs> That's my plan when I get there. Hopefully I'll finish this book within the next six months or so so that you can join me on my journey through fiction. All
1: right. I think we'll call that an episode and if you want to find out the stuff that we are not going to carry over from Bickham, you can listen to our bonus podcast.
3: Yay!
1: Thanks all for listening and this will probably come out right before the holidays so
0: happy holidays happy new year. Happy holidays, happy eating and happy baking
1: Mmm Words to Write By is produced by Renee Nelson and Kim Smeaga Our theme music is Roll Back the Carpet by Cool Cat Music Have a great day
0: A lot of cookies the other day. had a couple of cake fails. It was all right though they're tasty. They're tasty.